Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. First, uh, recurring fan favorite, uh, Ali Ahmed of CoVenture, and uh, and new guest, uh, Chris Keller. Uh, Chris, uh, Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you very much, it. Eric. Uh, um, Chris, fun to do this with you. Uh, yeah. Uh, by, by way of introduction, Ali, can, can you introduce Chris and uh, introduce what, how he differentiates in the LP world, how he sees the view, uh, the world differently, and then, and then we'll get into the interview. Sure. So, so Chris and I have actually got to know each other over the last couple of years. So Chris's background is he works with Mullis Asset Management, um, and he manages a fund called Archean, um, which seeds and anchors private equity firms, uh, or new uh, private equity funds. Um, and then Mollus Asset Management broadly partners with emerging asset management firms in various asset classes, um, provides LP capital to those businesses, um, takes a stake in those businesses, and helps them build their business, whether it's helping them find investments, find LPs, figure out their strategy, et cetera. And this is a lot of what Chris has been doing through his whole career. He's on the LP side for a while. And one of the cool things about having Chris on the show is, you know, Eric, you and I, all we do all day is like spend our time with startup people, venture capitalists, founders, et cetera. And like all like the quote unquote deep insights of venture capital, like aren't really that deep of insights. There's things we all talk about all day. But like LPs, like at least to me, are like these mysterious, they're probably what like VCs used to be to founders before blogging. Like LPs are like this mysterious, I'm not really sure what they're thinking. And, you know, I wonder if the answer they're giving me is actually true. And like, have they already filled that bucket or asset allocation? What is an asset allocation? All that is like super fascinating. And so it'd be fun to, for both of us, to talk to Chris a lot about that sort of today. And just zooming out really quick, why hasn't that changed yet? Who's going to be the Fred Wilson of LPs or, or, or is it going to take a lot longer? Chris, when you read online about like, LP stuff. I don't really know what to call it. Like when you, when, when all you LPs are out there sort of consuming information, what are you reading? Are you reading stuff from managers? Are you reading stuff from other LPs? Are you reading like, like what do you read? What, what newsletters do you subscribe to? What websites are you going to? Who do you like kind of look up to for information? Well, I think the, uh, the average LP probably tries to consume, you know, everything you just mentioned, you know, where you spend most of your time. I mean, I certainly leaned more heavily into academic papers and things that, that, you know, I tried to glean some sort of, you know, decision-making, uh, you know, framework from, or just a way to think about uh, the industry and, and, and finding sort of anomalies or efficiencies in the industry. But I'm sure, you know, different LPs have different things they consume. I think one to, to Eric's question about, you know, who kind of steps into that um, kind of a leadership role. I think one thing LPs don't do a fantastic job of is sharing ideas with each other and, you know, networking with each other. And so if you, you know, within the call it the VC community, we can all name the 10 or 20 investors that we think are probably the very best in the business or have one of the more stellar track records. I mean, it's not totally transparent, but I think there's enough information to kind of uh, uh, back into who we think those people probably are. If I ask you the same question about LPs, I'd 
pretty sure nobody knows the answer to that. I mean, people turn to the, the Yales and, and some of the endowments as, as, as real leaders, but I don't think anyone really knows what the track record is of, of the individuals. And I think a little bit of that has to do with information sharing and, and, and lack of transparency at the LP level and being able to ascertain like, you know, skill levels across different LPs. And, and Chris, how did you learn how to be an LP? Like, was it the first person you worked for? Was it like you read the Swenson book and were like, oh wow, that makes a lot of sense. Like, who did you, how did you learn how to be an LP and version. who did you learn from? Yeah, so I have a little cool. bit of an unusual, I have an unusual background. At one point, I thought I was going to be a doctor, so I have a degree in molecular biology. I worked in the, in the healthcare industry for 10 years, and one day, I was, I was working at a startup, and I was on my way to work, and I bumped into a, uh, an old colleague of mine who was a doctor and had a startup himself, and kind of learned what he was doing. And he, uh, he was working at, a, at my prior firm called uh, Summit Strategies, investment consulting firm. He told me what he was up to, which is basically sitting on the LP side of the table, interviewing venture capitalists um, and deciding which ones to invest in. And uh, I had been scratching and clawing at this startup for a while. And I said, kind of a holy, holy yes moment. You know, I, I can sit on that side of the table and interview the VCs instead of the other way around. And so I asked him how, I, how to get in the business. And that was, that was how I got started. He hired me a few weeks later and, and I was off and running. How I learned to invest. I mean, it was obviously he was a mentor. Uh, but, but my firm, you know, as an investment consulting firm, there's a lot of smart people around the room. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, I learned by being, by, by mentorship, by apprenticeship, uh, by the people that had been doing this for, for an awful long time. And then I think the, the, you know, you all, you, you bring your own experiences to the table and having a non-traditional background, I think allows you to, you know, bring new ideas to the room or just to, to question the conventional wisdom. So we certainly had our own, you know, sort of twists or, um, uh, ways that we went about the business that, that might be different than others, but I think you know sometimes it's good to to bring new blood into the room and and to think about things in a in a slightly different way. And when you're interviewing one of these managers, um, what what kind of questions did you ask Chris when you were a new LP that you don't ask anymore? And what are the things that you care a lot more now that when you were sort of new at the job you didn't put enough emphasis on? Hmm. That's a really good question. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I've been in it long enough. I can't quite remember what I asked, you know, 15 years ago or whenever it was when I started. But uh, I certainly know what I have spent more time focused on the last, you know, several years. And I think this gets a little bit to, uh, um, to the second part of your question. I we all focus on a lot of the same things as LPs. I mean, team, strategy, track record, you know, there's, there's, it's kind of a generic, you know, soup of, of things that we all tend to focus on. I think one area that I have learned or, or have spent more time on in, in addressing with managers is this around ideas around persistence and humility. Um, and I, I kind of think about those as like grit, persistence being grit and humility being kind of this learning process. And I and the persistence piece has a little bit to do with my focus on first time funds and, you know, emerging managers and, and the need for those managers coming out of established brand name shops where, you know, the money either hit them in the face or they had, you know, sort of a, a brand halo where I'm not sure life was ever easy, but there was just a certain tailwind to the business. Starting a new firm of, uh, and, and trying to raise money and build trust with LPs without that brand behind you is a soul crushing sort of uh, endeavor and it's going to require persistence. So looking for evidence that people have, um, 
you know, bootstrapped their career in some way where they, you know, overcame adversity and, um, and on the humility side, you know, have learned from that and can improve their processes on the other side or improve their judgment on the other side. I actually remember uh, I kind of started down this path maybe a little bit. I was meeting with a manager one time. We invested in them. This was maybe 10 years ago now or close to it. And I remember they hadn't lost money on a deal in like seven years. It was just a stellar track record. It was completely bulletproof. And I remember actually actually being worried about that. And, you know, we're in the business of taking risk and we're in the business of, you know, making judgment calls in uncertain, almost contrarian like situations. If you're batting a, a, a you know, a thousand in that scenario, you know, either you're lying to me or there's, you know, you either, or something, something else nefarious may be wrong. I actually want people to, um, you know, struggle with a deal to have the humility to talk through the learning process on that deal and, and what came out the other side. And so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is sort of looking at track record. How hard is that to really figure out? You know, my gut is, you know, you're probably looking at an Excel sheet that was dumped out from a manager. The manager says, no, 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 I promise this is all the deals I've ever done. And it's like, how much did they put in? What was the date? What's it marked at? Who did the follow on? All that stuff. Like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for like a handful of home runs, consistency? You mentioned grit. So I'd imagine maybe there's a little bit more consistency that you lean towards. But like, what is that sort of like, aha, wow, I already know that this is going to be something that is interesting moment. Um, or what else about, you know, is it a founder reference? Like, what are like those aha moments? Um, I'm not sure there's aha moments so much as it relates to the track record. My aha moments tend to be around the people and, uh, and sort of the, mm-hmm. sort of a, a cultural sort of uh, alignment or something along those lines that 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 I gravitate to, but on the track record, I think there's two things that, um, or maybe I, two things run through my head as you were asking the question. I think there's there's today's day and age after a 10 year you know bull market effectively maybe 11 year bull market now, you know the, the rising tide syndrome lifting all boats is hard you know everybody's got a decent track record right now so you know sort of disaggregating you know skill from luck is you know particularly challenging i think uh, at this at this moment in time and the other thing i think is a little bit more that's more of a maybe a cyclical issue and and there's a structural issue i think in in the asset class that i've always sort of wrestled with which is i think we as lps do a particularly poor job or it's particularly hard for us to risk adjust returns and, you know, when you're in a, you know, I, I would watch my traditional asset uh, class peers, my old firm who did, you know, you know, stock and bond and hedge fund portfolios, they had all kinds of tools to risk adjust the returns. You know, what sort of tracking error did you need to suffer? What kind of volatility did you need to suffer to generate the returns? I think private equity just in, in, in all of its flavors generally resists, you know, risk adjusting the, the track record, you know, what how much hair was on the deal or, you know, what sort of, um, you know, risks were inherent in the fundamentals of the underlying businesses you invested in, um, you know, how much, uh, how much cyclicality did you, su- did you suffer or, you know, we, the, the marks are so infrequent, you really can't measure volatility. So there's just a bunch of dynamics I think that make it really challenging to risk adjust uh, the returns. And so those, I don't know if I was ever good at it, but that was one area that we, uh, have always spent a lot of time thinking about is trying to understand what what the manager is doing with their portfolio, portfolio what kind of risks they are assuming, and, and you know how do they manage those risks and, and getting comfortable um, 
that we're getting compensated adequately uh, uh, for those dynamics. I'm curious how the evolution in the founder VC dynamic uh, will be similar or will be, or will be uh, imitated between the VC and LP dynamic. And one of the things we saw in, in the founder VC dynamic is that the, the power really shifted from, from VCs to, to founders as people who create the value in a way that really had forced VCs to, ch- to ask them, answer the question, what value are you really adding? Um, and we even saw this, or we're seeing this sort of debate on, are founders actually better VCs that, than the VCs are? Uh, with the idea of operator angel funds, micro funds, you know, VCs themselves having to min founders or, or scout programs. And I've always asked, like, why do fund to funds exist? Like, are fund to funds better at picking other GPs than Mike Maples at Floodgate or Josh Koppelman at First Round or, or other VCs? It'd be fairly easy for them to uh, to pick and get into uh, other 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 firms. Um, how do you think about that? Well, to address the the um, I guess maybe the 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 negotiating leverage or the or the the market dynamics that create some of those uh, you know negotiating dynamics, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of similarity in in, in at least what I observe that that venture capitalists have had to deal with, with, you know, really talented repeat entrepreneurs, which is, you know, it's a, it's a competitive market and, and, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of leverage that those, that those entrepreneurs hold over, over a lot of the venture managers. I think the same hold is true with venture managers in, in their LPs. I, I was having a conversation the other day with, uh, with an LP who had just made a commitment to a venture fund that was pretty well, uh, you know, a pretty well-known brand. And the diligence process was completely uncomfortable. The ability to ask questions and to, you know, meet a broad swath of the team was was limited. And so they had to kind of compromise their their typical underwriting process in order to secure uh, the allocation. That's that's certainly not an ideal uh, not an ideal dynamic. So I think there's some similarities in in, in that. Um, on the fund to fund business or the, the the rationale or the the reason a fund to funds could exist, um, I think. I, I don't really have a great perspective on why a Mike Maples or someone like that w- wouldn't step in and, and kind of serve a similar role. But, you know, speaking for a typical LP and the way they build or construct portfolios, you know, there's the, the allocation thing I just mentioned, you know, in a competitive market. Fund of funds, in my opinion, my history, my experience have actually added value to a lot of LPs in the sense that they have a lot of those long-term relationships. So they have that capacity with some of the firms that, that otherwise are maybe hard to get into. Um, I, I, you know, in terms of manager selection skill or, or lack thereof is, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to kind of on a deal by deal basis determine whether it exists or not, but on a sort of a, a large statistical basis, if you look at a lot of the fund of funds, they that the, some of the better ones and there's a lot of them have actually you know added value relative to the venture markets you're not getting a venture median return minus their fees you're actually getting something uh, above that so i think you know in some larger scale they're adding value and, and shading the portfolio towards you know the higher the higher performing firms but i think the a lot of the value for an lp is is a little bit more in, in a little more structural and this gets to maybe uh, something you know, Ali or we were talking about before the before the podcast, which is portfolio construction, and a lot of LPs, uh, you know, are, are concentrating more or, or focusing more and more on concentrating their portfolio, less manager names uh, in their portfolio, kind of making chunkier bets, 
And, uh, you know, that can sometimes be challenging in the venture asset class where, you know, it's capacity constrained. And so, you know, fund of funds can add value in terms of being able to, to kind of scale up uh, uh, through a chunkier commitment to the asset class. That's kind of one, that's one feature they can add. And I think if you're, you're, you know, I think if you're kind of running a more concentrated portfolio, so a typical client my old, in my old job as an investment consultant, you know, a typical client would be making between five and seven commitments a year across the entire private equity asset class, including buyouts and credit and things of that nature. And so to kind of build a portfolio around that kind of, and you're, you're maybe a quarter of your portfolio is venture capital, that kind of implies you're making one venture bet a year, maybe two. That's kind of a hard game to win. I think there's a lot more dispersion of returns in venture. And to have a, you know, a fund to fund as a tool, as a way to kind of have that exposure, not have to take quite so much idiosyncratic, you know, single manager risk. Because so, what I'm hearing there is, so the, one of the reasons, maybe not the only reason to be in a fund to fund is if you're an allocator and you're used to making really chunky investments and a handful of things each year, that game doesn't really work with venture capital because the funds are so small and you have to write so many small checks. So if you want to basically take what you normally do and write one sort of larger check each year, you got to do the fund to fund. Otherwise, you have to build that program internally. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I, def I totally agree with that. It, it, as, as well as, you know, you know, there's there's also the relationship issue and whether you even have the capacity if you wanted it. And, right. And because and, one of the things that, you know, I've struggled with is, and this is across even our co-ventures investing, and is the worse the market, the more concentrated I generally want to be because the more diversified I am, the more I'm taking beta. And if I don't believe in beta at any given time in the market, then like the best way to actually have alpha is just for picking my spots. And the better time of year or, you know, vintage it is to invest, the more I'd want to kind of spread out and just sort of take beta and invest in a bunch of funds that, you know, whether it, I don't want to name names, but like, you know, a classic fund that might make 30 investments a year and make small investments in a bunch of different companies and almost like indexing early stage. Um, how do you, like, what is the right amount of concentration? Like, are you looking at this at Chris at a, you know, company level? Or are you looking at a fund level? Are you looking at a FinTech versus healthcare versus marketplaces? Like, how do you think about what the, if you're an endowment, a foundation, a pension, and you have a hundred dollars, how are you supposed to be getting diversification within the venture market? Yeah, and I think your your observation about you know your you know the the beta versus the alpha sort of uh, you know pendulum there I think is a a large part of the rationale and why LPs have gotten more concentrated. I mean, for ten or twenty years, you know the illiquidity uh, the illiquidity premium, or I mean, it's almost like a beta was the alpha. The asset class generated a, a healthy return, but as obviously as money came in and and uh, return assumptions and, and, and the alpha opportunities from an illiquidity premium has, you know, shrunk. I think the consequence of that or the, the, the strategy shift has to become, you know, more concentrated and to, and to, you know, focus on manager selection or other tools to try to re-engineer uh, the alpha. So I think there's a lot of commonalities in the way you think about your portfolio and in, in, in perhaps the way a lot of LPs have reacted uh, to the market. What the right answer is and how that translates into, the way you construct a portfolio, obviously there's, you know, a thousand LPs with different tolerances for risk and, and diversification. But I think, um, you know, in terms of the venture portfolio, um, 
specifically, you know, to my point, if you're only making earlier point, if you're only making one or two venture bets a year, um, you know, directly without a fund to fund being one of them, uh, you know, that means you're, you're, you know, you're probably pretty concentrated at the manager level and you probably, uh, maybe for some safety uh, uh, risk management, you might focus on uh, venture funds that were slightly larger scale, maybe slightly larger number of underlying portfolio companies to, to try to like, you know, manage that risk. But the, it would be hard to do a proverbial, you know, small fund doing 10 deals because you end up obviously mm-hmm. owning a lot of idiosyncratic company risk. So I don't have an answer for you on the right math, but I think the, you know, the, the, the concentration tends to, the concentrated strategy tends to guide, I think, some LPs to kind of larger asset managers, not just because of the scale of the check they're trying to write, but also, you know, a little bit around the risk, the risk management consideration. Right. And, and that kind of also brings me sort of to, to another point, which is, you know, there's the, uh, the unicorn article that was published in TechCrunch, I don't know, like four, five years ago now, that like all of a sudden everyone about the, the importance of power law and now everything's unicorn. But how do you think about hitting for average and hitting for power um, when it comes to a portfolio? Like, do you buy into this ventures completely driven by power law and by one or two companies? Um, does that, or, and maybe it's not either or, maybe the answer is, hey, you know, it's okay to just be driven by power law as long as you get enough diversity. Or you might say, hey, you know what, like, actually, if you're going to have a little bit more concentration, which maybe you need sometimes in venture, hitting for average is a little bit safer. But like, how do you think about that dynamic between the two? You know, I think I, I was a skeptic on the on the on the power law sort of um, dynamic for a long time. I maybe I resisted it. I, I wanted to believe that there was um, other ways to win in this business and that hitting for average was was one of those and and not having to be in the top five or ten venture funds to, to make that to make that work. I, I think I still want to believe that. I think I've seen enough math that you know having a deal inside of a fund that returns the fund or something close to it is uh, you know, a mathematical is a ma- mathematical reality for winning the, the the venture business. So I don't know if I have a final answer on that, but I think it's a lesson or something I've I've evolved on a little bit over the years. Um, but I think the one thing that uh, you know any manager probably has experienced when they have that home run type um, winner in their portfolio facing LPs, trying to raise money, trying to convince them that it's a repeatable model. You know, it's one thing when, you know, a benchmark or, you know, name the, name the really established firm out there that's got those, those, num- those types of returns. There's enough evidence that it is repeatable or they've, they've been able to repeat it. Um, and and, and you know, people aren't super skeptical about it. If I'm meeting a manager and, and it's maybe their second fund and I'm looking at their first fund, and they've got one home run ball in that portfolio that that you know return the fund and then some. I, you know, it's almost like you you. Uh, I don't want to say you penalize them for for the concentrated return, but you you kind of get concerned on repeatability. And in that case, maybe average is actually a little bit more comforting because it's a repeatable skill set, or you seem more confident in the 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 ability for them to repeat. And maybe that home run ball was a little bit more, you know, luck than skill. And so I, I think it has a little bit to do with the life cycle of the manager. And, you know, you hate to penalize people for their very best deal, but I always got worried um, 
in, in some of those types of early early getting to know a manager phase of of you know making a bet on somebody who who had had kind of a concentrated return because I was always worried whether I was skilled enough to to differentiate between their luck and skill. Mm-hmm. And and who's your boss? Like when you're explaining all this and you're saying, hey, you know, I want to here's my strategy. Here's what I think we should be doing. Chris, what are, what are the questions you're getting like when you're sort of coming up with this thesis and this allocation policy and sort of this view and how do your incentives or how does, and maybe not you personally, but like how do the incentives of LPs broadly line up with the ability to invest? Like I know, you know, from my perspective, if I'm investing in a crappy vintage and I have an investment period and I'm going to deploy the capital one way or another, that's not great. And by the way, if I'm getting yelled at by my investors because I'm taking fees and committed capital, but so much of it's in cash, like all of a sudden I'm getting forced to do something dumb. Theoretically, I'm smart enough not to do that, but it's hard. Um, how, how are you thinking about the incentive mismatches or alignment as an LP? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing I've, in, you know, in the, the time I've been in the business, I, I feel like I've observed a shift. I, I, I don't have data and it's more anecdotal than anything, but it feels like the incentives for the, the a typical LP has gotten shorter term in nature. And I don't obviously don't think that's a great, uh, a great uh, shift in the business. I, I have, I have had conversations with LPs who have, you know, one, one to three year type um, schedules on, on bonuses and how they get measured. I mean, this, these are asset classes where you're supposed to still be, you know, negative returns in those first few years. And there's actually bonuses on the line uh, in those early years. So I, I just, I think there's some, a little bit of a, a short-termism that's creep, crept into the business. I don't know if it's by design or by accident, but you know, one premise that I have is uh, the increasing availability of data and benchmarking in the business. I mean, you know, you asked about who my boss is and, and, and some of the dynamics. My bosses have typically been you know, pension plans, endowments, other types of institutional investors. You know, rightly, they want to be, they want to benchmark their portfolio. They want to know how things are going and they want to, you know, make sure that they're, you know, meeting their return expectations and, and you know, sort of in a way that is, is uh, out, you know, outperforming the market or at least performing in line with the market or better. And so I think benchmarking is, is, is appropriate and correct for a lot of reasons, but I think the ability for people to benchmark their returns, you know, can kind of create some short-term incentives. And so, um, you know, I think that's, that's one dynamic that I've seen shift. One other question, you know, sort of investing in these managers, actually to flip it around, as a manager myself, I look at raising LP capital almost like enterprise sales, where it's a super long sales cycle. How long do you think you've known the average manager before you commit? Like, what does that sales cycle look like when you're the buyer? And yeah. what does a manager have to do once you commit? For you to stay committed and what do they have to do for you to decide to hit the redeem button um all else being equal aside from you know asset allocation stuff but maybe just to come back to it how long do you think you've usually known someone before you allocate capital to them yeah i mean the average is probably one fund cycle i mean you know if i had to be you know super honest about the the hundreds if not thousands of, of meetings i've taken I'm, my guess is it's a one fund cycle type thing but it clearly has a huge like range three years yeah, something like that. Um, you know, that's, that's, I don't know if that's average or not, but, but I, you know, I've clearly when, when I, when I've had several dozens of commitments that we have made that we, you know, did based on the first meeting, not 
we didn't we had diligence after that, but it was the first cycle, meaning we met them, they were in their fundraising process, and we invested inside that particular fundraising process. Um, is actually quite a few of those. But the you know, the, the cycle from first meeting to the yes or the commitment can probably be, you know, painfully long. And, and you know, we were probably a, a three-ish month to six-ish month cycle um, on average. And, you know, there's others that are, you know, maybe more bureaucratic or more careful and are, you know, a year or more. And so, you know, those, those can be long cycles to your point about enterprise sales, even within that fundraising, that, that specific fundraising process. I think what, um, to your point about what causes managers, you know, what causes you to redeem or stick with them, you know, once you're in, I, I you know, there's, I, mean, I guess there's a couple things you're always wrestling with is did they do what they said they were going to do? And that has a bunch of different variations on it, but, but generally speaking, if a manager did exactly what you expected them to do, um, you tended to be stick with them for, you know, at least two funds. Uh, you know, after that is probably when, you know, benchmarking returns, other things, you know, kind of become more, uh, they're always important, but I think you begin to be a bit more critical around, you know, cash back to me uh, and to my clients after, after, you know, maybe two funds. I think the, the thing that would probably prompt you to hit eject or, or, you know, not to recommit after one cycle tends to be around, for me, it tended to be around communication and, um, you know, not just doing, not doing what you said you were going to do, but, but, you know, keeping us surprised of what was going on in the portfolio or, or, you know, helping us stay on top of the portfolio, just, I guess, in the realm of transparency. I can remember, you know, one group that we were super excited about. We, we, you know, love the thesis. We love the team and they just kind of disappeared on us uh, once they had the money and didn't keep us informed of what was going on in the portfolio. When it came time to ask for money, you know, we had diligence questions, help us get to know this company, that company, tell us about the operating performance underlying the portfolio companies because there were no exits. So we had to rely on sort of fundamental, you know, business um, updates. And they were just reluctant to provide anything like that. And so it, it you know, I think during that period is, is, is super critical. And then, you know, then there's always the easy choices that the firm blows up and people are, you know, leaving like rats from a ship, you're going to hit eject pretty fast. And what, um, what, what kind of communication happens between you and a manager you're not yet allocated to during that three-year process it takes to get to know them? Um, you know, you mentioned that there are a handful of times that you guys have invested in fund managers where you met them the first time they're out, you get there on the first fundraising cycle, but that normally it takes about three years. What kind of relationship does that look like? Are you getting quarterly yeah. letters? Are you getting lunch with these, like, the, 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 these people? Like, what, what happens? I don't know if this is a skill or a mindset or a little bit of both, but, but I think the very best people that I've observed in kind of that G, in the GP community and kind of the raising the capital is they seem to have this mindset of it's a no for now. You know, they don't take the first no personally. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they, they, they recognize or they're comfortable that this is a, a long sales cycle to your earlier point. And, and they don't disappear between, they just realize it's a no for now. And they almost like, <laughs> It almost emboldens them to be more communicative and 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 and, um, and and more frequent in their communications with you. So, 
I would encourage, you know, the average, you don't, you don't, there's, a, there's a balance here. You don't want to pester to the point where you force someone to tell you no forever. But, uh, you know, there's a pleasant persistence kind of equilibrium there of, of trying to keep people informed of what's going on in the portfolio. Um, you know, see them when you're in town, invite them to AGMs, whatever it is that, that uh, is your strategy for staying in front of people, but kind of keep that no for now mindset. And, and uh, I think it works. I think, I think LPs want to continue to get to know people and it's a crowded market. The LP desk is cluttered with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pitch decks and, uh, you know, maintaining, maintaining that communication, I think is, uh, is really important for, for people to remember you three years later. I think the hardest part about raising money, and probably GPs, maybe you guys feel the same way, is is that whole roadshow process is is it seems so archaic. You know, how are you really going to form a strong relationship, build an informed opinion and conviction when you have these sort of roadshow dynamics? You have an hour here and there to get to know people, to get to know the portfolio, and I just think there's a better way to do it, which is these, you know three, four year periods of getting to know each other and not just showing up when it's time to raise money. Totally. I, I want to zoom out and ask some, some higher level questions. What, what is, we haven't seen so much, uh, or we haven't seen a ton of innovation in, in the VC uh, world in the last, last few decades. Like it doesn't look that, that different, uh, you know, despite the fact that there's some bloggers here and there, but the fundamental structure of the business and the strategies uh, deployed by these firms, how much of it is due to uh, the field not being that inherently changeable in the way that you know companies and technologies are, uh, i.e., you know, software-driven. Uh, everyone thought AngelList was going to be this huge disruptor, and it seems to have been a sustainer, a sustaining innovation. Versus how much of it is sort of the LPs, you know, tail wagging the dog in terms of LPs have sort of settled on what types of portfolio constructions and what types of firms they want to invest in, and they, those have been the types of firms that have been winning, and thus we keep seeing the same, the same, same strategies. Yeah, and I, I think, Eric, I would zoom out even further from that, and your question is really around venture, uh, but I'd say the same dynamic applies across, you know, basically the entire, you know, private equity illiquid asset class, which is, I think, you know, generally speaking, what is different um, gets, is, is a hard sell. Anything that's unusual or different and requires a staff or anyone else to go to their boss or to their board or, you know, uh, to their clients, if you're a consultant, and kind of pitch the unusual is is a hard, it's a hard thing to do for those individuals. And so, I mean, I had a recent experience of a, a group that we backed that had a, uh, if you really did the math, had a really, really unique sort of incentive structure, which, you know, was basically a hard hurdle. And if you did the math, it was, it was a good deal for the LPs, but it was a hard sell because it required someone to pull out a calculator and to, uh, and to make a case for why this was, a, uh, it appeared on the surface to be a, um, you know, a lower hurdle rate uh, for the manager to earn their incentive, um, but in reality, it was actually a higher hurdle rate, and that's just—it's just different. And so, different, I think, gets uh, uh, is just hard for people to absorb and to make the case for. So, I think that's a little bit of the of the of the disease that you're identifying in in, in venture specifically. Um, beyond that, I don't have a great idea on why why the industry is resisted so much as. I think things that are kind of cookie cutter and kind of similar are easier to transact, you know, like the 10 year fund with a five year drawdown and a, you know, 2% management fee and a 20% hurdle, all the major terms that tend to be boilerplate and used over and over. I think it just makes it easier for people to transact. And, and, and back to my point of comfort, 
And, you know, if you do things that are unusual, it just kind of gums up the system. And so I think it kind of tends to, to resist the change, the, the change a little bit, a little bit for that reason. I, I want to put some observations on the table and see if, uh, see if any of you have, uh, have reactions to them. So, so one is sometimes I'm a little confounded. You know, it seems that on one side there, there's capital and the other side there's entrepreneurs building companies. And it seems that there's a whole lot of middlemen in, in between. And I wonder if they get squished uh, over time and we just get the capital to the people who are, who are building companies with, without the different layers of, of middlemen. That's one observation. Two is, uh, it, you know, a lot of industries are propped up by regulation. And I wonder if, if VC is no different. We have a accredited investor, you know, it means you need to be semi-rich to be an investor, general solicitation, which means you need to you know, be well connected to, to raise money, and then limited spots on cap tables, which crowds out uh, other smaller investors. And I'm curious how, how that might evolve over time. And then the last point is on uh, when people talk about, you know, a lot of people complain about the different incentives between VCs and founders uh, in terms of, uh, you know, diverse uh, of, of power law. And we talked about it a little bit earlier in this episode, but I, I wonder how much of that stems from, you know, or, or a lot of it seems to stem from the LPs. And I wonder if there will be like an indie LP that is okay with VCs taking a more diversified uh, approach instead of needing these, uh, these huge, huge outliers. So there's, there's a few different points. I'm curious for any reactions. I've had a, I don't know, a theory or an observation around that for a while when it, when it comes to this asset class, which is I think generally speaking, we're going in that direction. I don't know if it'll ever be quite as efficient as, as your ideal state, but uh, you know, the, these markets tend towards, tend towards disintermediation. And I think, you know, we've seen evidence of that in, 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 in different pockets of the business, but I think, you know, the, the the growth and the utilization of technology and other forms of communication and sharing the data, I think only enhances that transition. And so I kind of talked about data and, and the availability of data when it came to, to, to benchmarking earlier, but I think it has an impact a little bit around disintermediation as well and squeezing out some of those middlemen. So if you look at the market, I don't know, 20 years ago, pick a date, uh, you know, knowing who the good managers were was, was really uh, a lot more challenging. I mean, I'm sure there, there's elites that, that, that people, everyone knew, but you can, anyone can go into PitchBook or Prequent a day and dig out, you know, performance numbers on, on most firms and start to kind of back into the groups they want to uh, focus on and build relationships with. If you're, if you're a data-driven sort of, you know, focus on experienced managers uh, uh, in, in your portfolio. And so I think that kind of began to squeeze, largely squeeze the role of, of consulting firms who had been that repository of information, and that was my old industry. But I think we were kind of the subject matter experts, and and we we were the the owners of that of that insight. And so, you know, largely that became more challenging for consulting firms to uh, to be the the gatekeeper with it, that owned that information. I think fund to funds a little bit uh, suffered the same thing, but maybe for slightly different reasons. Is you know, in, in investment uh, or asset owners. They, they hire staff and when they hire staff, this, you know, the staffs are going to, they're obviously there for a reason and they're going to make their own investment decisions. And so, you know, fund to funds, plain, plain vanilla fund to funds that aren't doing something that's hard to do, uh, you know, get squeezed in that environment. So I think that those trends have already kind of happened or are still happening. And I think to your point, I think they continue to happen. I think, the, you know, technology and data access to data is, is a, is a, is a strong, force kind of driving us in that direction. But like I said, I don't know if it ever goes far enough uh, uh, for the state that you were, you were articulating. So, so uh, the way I'll come at the question is a little differently. It's from, uh, let me start at the founder. 
if I was a founder and I wanted to raise a seed round of capital, you know, how do I decide who I raise around from? Well, there's a handful of things that I look at. I look at, okay, so is this person, I want to raise from a lead investor who's investing enough of their fund where they care a lot. You know, I wouldn't want to raise from a super large fund that focused on Series A because they're investing in the round. They're, you know, I might get a really high valuation because they don't care the valuation because they're basically just buying a cheap option and be able to do the Series A. Um, so that's the benefit. The negative is they don't really care if my company goes BK and they're certainly not going to help me if things are going in the middle because if things are going in the middle, there's definitely like a power law in terms of like what the really good Series A's look like and what the mediocre ones look like. Um, so I probably want to be with a firm that is investing in an amount that is meaningful to them um, such that if things are going poorly, I'm going to go bankrupt. If they're going great, it won't have mattered. But if they're going good enough but not great, they'll still be there. The second thing I'm going to want to do is look at somebody who doesn't have like, an initial bias of what the next fan's going to look like. You know, so again, if I raise money from a firm that uh, you know, has an agenda, it's either strategic, they're trying to do the next round, whatever, I'm not going to run an efficient process because as a founder, my expertise isn't going and finding my customers, building my product. Capital raising really isn't my expertise. Um, if I was a public company, I'd have bankers for that. But in the meantime, like your VCs are sort of, unless you're like a, a second time founder and even then, your VCs are essentially your capital markets team and you want them to be able to raise, uh, run an efficient process and also be able to follow on and participate in that process. Um, you also want someone who can help you recruit good talent. By the way, you might be starting a company for the first time, so you want someone to help you learn how to interview people. You might want somebody who can kind of be like a coach in terms of how you manage people. You might want somebody who the fact that they invested gives you brand validation, such that a customer will take you seriously when they might not have otherwise. And by the way, employees may want to join your company because you have the brand validation of that seed investor. Until a marketplace can solve those problems, I think an LP going direct to companies would probably have trouble. So I'd say what, like, to, work, to figure out whether or not that's going to happen, you have to figure out what are all the reasons you take money from a particular investor and then decide could a marketplace like Angelus really provide that to you. And I think we tried that. We found out what the answer was, which is party rounds kind of suck. If your business is doing in the middle, there's no one there to kind of like help you. Um, and I don't know, until, until you can change that, uh, that's sort of my answer. The, the last thing is the, the business of venture capital is not about investing uh, efficient capital and deciding what the right valuation is. Venture capital is essentially like merchant banking, right? So in traditional merchant banking, what happens is you have an entity, they invest a little bit of money into you, and then you help, they help you and get advisory shares and you might even pay them a consulting fee. In venture capital, what you do is you buy the equity at a price that's lower than what the company's actually worth. And then your profit margin is in the fact that that company is willing to work with you for a valuation that's you know, less because they believe that you could provide value in the form of all the things I just mentioned. Um, so it is very hard as a marketplace to disintermediate that because you now have to pay a higher efficient equity price and lose your profit margin of the advisory such that a merchant bank and, uh, and venture capital firm, their businesses are analogous. Uh, the other point I had was about regulation propping up v VC, uh, accredited investor, general solicitation, and the amount of uh, spots on a cap table are all, all regulations that favor incumbents. If, if those regulations didn't exist or, or went away, how could the VC or LP ecosystem change in your view? Well, I'll, I'll add one, which is, I, so there's a concept called a 3C1 and a 3C7. Um, a 3C7 means that you can take in uh, 1,999 investors, 
but they all have to be qualified purchasers. And a qualified purchaser is someone who's worth over $5 million, an entity that's worth over $25 million, and there's a handful of other ways. The second is a 3C1. In a 3C1, you can raise money from 99 people, and they are accredited investors. These are people who are worth over a million dollars or make over a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever the number is. Um, and what's really challenging is if you're trying to raise a large enough fund, you kind of need to be a 3C7 because uh, you have to have more than 99 investors, right? Um, and the, but that means that accredited but unqualified purchasers, so these are even wealthy individuals, can't invest in most of the funds that they'd really want to invest in. By the way, RIAs can't participate in them, and an RIA is basically just an independent financial advisor, and they have clients. Like, I think that is one of the things that hasn't been talked about a lot, which is sort of this, like, super random thing where the wealthy can invest in, like, the, the ultra-wealthy can invest in mass, but as the concept of, like, a millionaire, which, by the way, is still a lot of money, but, like, it's, a millionaire today is not what a millionaire in the 70s or 80s was. Um, the concept that, that millionaires, in the traditional sense, are kind of boxed out from putting their savings in most of these legal entity structures, I think that's like a low hanging fruit that um, I know it might not be what your question was angling towards, but it's something that's got to change. Um, this whole 3C7 versus 3C1 thing. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the regulators' hearts were in the right place of protecting people uh, from themselves perhaps, but I, the, 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 whole, the whole qualified purchaser litmus test uh, in terms of using wealth as a proxy for intelligence and knowledgeable investor to me just seems so so dated. Uh, just because you have a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean you're qualified. You know, you're qualified to make that investment decision. And just because you have very little assets, but you're a professional investor, you know this market space really well, but you just don't reach that dollar threshold. Seems it, it, it seems it seems out of date. Last question. I'll let you guys go. Could you imagine an indie LP emerging in the same way that there is an indie VC, i.e., uh, a, you know, a, a firm that doesn't need its VCs to go for power law uh, outcomes? Uh, and, and two, do you um, and any last prediction for how the, the LP ecosystem is going to change in the next decade? I think um, there's absolutely going to be LPs who react to the idea that, like right right now, and I kind of I, I've been talking to people about this like nonstop this week. If your company is like growing at 100% year over year, you can raise any amount of money at any valuation and you're fine. If you're growing at less than 100% year over year, like, but you know, above 75%, you can kind of raise. And if it's below 75% year over year, you're totally toast. And like, you know, there's this sort of like unit economics concept that VCs really latched onto because VCs suck at math and like they found one fraction that they can peg everything to. They're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And so, yeah, that kind of matters. But really like growth is like, all things are because of growth. When it comes to valuation. I think LPs will finally say, okay, whoa, 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 like there's probably some value here, you know, especially as it gets harder and harder to get returns, you know, maybe this micro private equity stuff should work. I think though, like there's got to be a better terminology than like, like, I, I don't think it's branded well yet, right? Like all these other firms that are not doing venture capital, it's all, it almost feels like, like poor man's VC, um, where if you could have taken VC and become a unicorn, you would have, but you can't, now you go to one of the, and I don't think that's what it actually is. I think instead what they're saying is, hey, we're going to give you like responsible capital that's appropriate for the stage you're at. And by the way, the greatest firms in the world until 2000, all were kind of built slowly. Like, you know, um, and, and so that's, but I think they need a new word for it. You know, venture capital is like a really cool brand, right? And venture capital has convinced people because it's such a cool asset class to work in it for less money than they would make if they were in private equity, um, to take money from it when they probably shouldn't, to invest in it when the asset class traditionally sucks at returns but it's such a well-branded asset class that people do it anyway. I think the answer to your question, like, and by the way, like 
Indy is such a good name. It is such a genius name. I think the asset class um, is going to need to be branded better. Totally. Chris, any last words? Yeah, I, I mean, to your point about the evolution of the of, of LPs, I, I think the uh, I would say it's a more the same and in the same meaning a transition towards more transactional mindsets at the average LP. So I think as they've you know migrated from totally outsourcing through consultants to fund of funds to building in you know direct uh, uh, portfolios, fund portfolios. And then over the last, you know, call it five plus years, 10 years, you know, increasingly LPs doing secondary transactions themselves, doing co-investments themselves, increasingly some of the more uh, established LPs are hiring teams in-house to do their own direct investing directly into companies. I think that trend continues. I, I think that trend continues because, um, you know, it's, 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 dollar, it's dollar fee savings that are pretty obvious to the institution and, uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's a, a real sore spot for the average, you know, you know LP board is, is trying to figure out ways to make a two and 20 asset class cheaper. My guests today have been uh, Ali Haman and Chris Keller. Uh, Ali, Chris, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.